If you want to pump your body and expand your mind, there's only one place to go. Mind Pump. Mind Pump. With your hosts, Sal Stefano, Adam Schaefer, and Justin Andrews. Dude, Dr. Ruscio, one of, uh, one of my favorite people. I'm so glad we connected with him a while ago. He's like our, our resident gut health expert, buffed, good-looking doctor guy. <laughs> right. He's also become a really good friend, man, for yeah. sure. Is I it- mean, we hit it off the very first time that we hung out down in Paleo way back when, right? The two years ago, two or three years ago was now. He's a really, it's been maybe three. Yeah. He's a really good guy. And uh, what I like about Dr. Ruscio is he's not an alarmist. You know what I mean? He's very calculated with what he says. He, he Well, he reminds me of the way he answered. I think this is what really connected all of us, right? Was when I'd ask him a question, the way he'd answer it reminds me of how we answer a question when somebody, for example, someone says, Adam, what's the best exercise to build your chest? Like you will not get like a, oh, incline or yeah. do these or do that from me. I'm going to say- Because we well, know that it depends. Right. It depends on so many different variables. And and yeah, actually a, a chest fly could be possibly the best thing you for your chest, or it could be the worst thing for you to do to grow your chest. Depends on a lot of different factors. And so when he talks about the gut, I really, I really appreciate that part of him because it is such, it's so complex Mm -hmm. and there are so many things, so many variables and there's extremely individual and there's a lot of unknowns still. And so when he explains it really, it really helps me. I know. And sometimes I'm sure you guys will hear in this episode, he does get pretty deep and, um, you know, he tends to go like with Sal where they get in the weeds for a little bit on some topics realize that it's not about only trainers that are listening mm-hmm. to this podcast, but I, it is, I think it's one that you should listen to multiple times. I think his book that we talk about, that's the thing, get his book. His book is written for the average person to be able to understand, read through and work on themselves. And that's the thing we talked a lot about in this podcast is just how individual, somebody's gut can be and what may work for one person may not work for another person. Um, his book goes into this and, and, and it actually walks you through step by step. It's it's one that I always recommend to people who ask me questions on gut health. And the name of the book is Healthy Gut, Healthy You. Uh, you can go to Dr. Ruscio, that's D-R-R-U-S-C-I-O.com forward slash get gut book, or you can just buy it on Amazon. I think we'll put a Link in the show notes. Um, and he also has a podcast, uh, Dr. Ruscio Radio. And uh, he talks a lot about gut health, of course, but other things pr- that pertain to health because he's also no, he's got a passionate great, about He's got a great in- Instagram page and he, he plugs it in the episode. We ask him where to find him or I think Sal asked him uh, mm-hmm. what exactly your Instagram was. And it's Dr. Ruscio. His last name's R-U-S-C-I-O. So that's his Instagram handle. And then this uh, this episode was actually uh, perfect, right? We have a gut health specialist. Dude, I'm so happy he likes this com- the kombucha that we're working with. Yeah, Brew no, Doctor. Yes, this episode is sponsored by the Brew Doctor and our official kombucha of mind pump, right? Yes, yes, yes. Very low in sugar. Um, it's a probiotic beverage, as if you, you've heard us talk about kombucha in the past. Uh, also, I do want to mention this month, if you enroll in any MAPS bundle, that is, uh, bundles are where we take two or more MAPS programs, put them together and discount them, you will get the the nutrition guide for free, the, uh, the intuitive nutrition guide for free, and you'll get the intermittent fasting guide for free. And you can find those all 
at mindpumpmedia.com. I posted too. I've had a lot of people ask me because I have posted the kombucha on my Insta story and people are asking where to get it. This You can guys can find it at Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, New Seasons, Kroger, Sprouts. Most Costco's will have it. So you can. it's one of the more popular kombuchas out there. That's right. So without any further ado, here we are talking to Dr. Michael Ruscio. When wow. you were writing this, who did you have in mind like when you were writing it? Now, obviously, because it's a gut health book that there's it's for everybody, but right. when you were putting it together, who, who did you think like, okay, this is going to be who's going to be purchasing and reading this the most? What were you thinking? You know, I, I pictured patients in my clinic, right? People who were motivated to improve their gut health, not necessarily someone who's never even heard of a probiotic, right? Because I wanted to give them something to do after you did the first two or three things that stereotypically come to mind when you think gut health, mm. which would be like a patient in my clinic. Hey, I, I improved my diet. I'm still floundering. I took a probiotic. I'm still floundering. And I hear all the questions that patients ask. Patients come in. They're scared to death of gluten. I, I read, mm-hmm. uh, you know, my mother had Hashimoto's and I've read that if you have a family history of autoimmunity, you could never have one bite of gluten. So I haven't been having any gluten. And this person is, is now underweight, right? They're, they've lost like 15 pounds they shouldn't have lost because they're not eating enough food. They're super fearful. And they, they just come in with all this unnecessary indoctrinated baggage mm. and confusion. Um, you know, I read about paleo. I read about autoimmune paleo. I read about low FODMAP. I read that you shouldn't take probiotics if you have SIBO, but I think I have SIBO. But then I read the breath testing isn't accurate. You should <laughs> rather do a urine. It's, and they come in and they're just being crippled by fear and questions and all the what about. What about this? What about that? Mm. So I wanted to write them a book that would teach them the important information they needed to know and then walk them through, okay, now what do we do with all that? Mm-hmm. Right? N- not, not let's do everything at once, but where do we start? Then we reevaluate. And then where do we go from there? Just how individual is it when you're working with someone with the, with, for, for their gut health? In other words, you know, there's a lot of general information that's out there in, to improve your gut health. But I feel like it's like anything else where, you know, we know that there's certain exercises, for example, that are good for you, but that doesn't mean you have a good program. Right. And it doesn't mean that that program will work for you. And it doesn't mean it will work for you all the time. How true is that for people's gut health? It's very true. Um, but yeah, I think there's two ways to look at this. It, it's good to have a an algorithm to walk people through. And the algorithm almost stays the same because an algorithm is kind of like a changing formula, right? So you have a set algorithm, but then how you navigate the algorithm depends on the individual's response, right? So the algorithm is painstakingly crafted from looking at the medical literature and trying to identify here are the treatments that are I, you know, under the umbrella of what I would organize first, meaning the least expensive, the least invasive, and the most effective. So diet would fall into that camp. And you start people with the diets that are the most effective, and you even organize the couple dietary trials in order of the diet that's the simplest to implement and will be effective for the most people, firstly. And then if that doesn't help them, you tweak the diet. So you may start with paleo, and if paleo doesn't work, you may go to low FODMAP. So the you know the big picture is somewhat, I guess you could say pre-programmed, but not everyone is going to go through the same program as everybody else because you build into the process this very personalized uh, series of checkpoints. Go on the paleo diet for two weeks. Are you feeling clearly improved or not? 
If yes, you know, continue through to maintenance. If no, we'll tweak now to low mm-hmm. FODMAP. And then you go into the probiotic protocol and it's the same kind of thing. We, you know, we try the few available probiotics. If that provides relief, then we go right into maintenance. If it doesn't mm-hmm. pro- provide relief, we build on that further. So it's a, it's a combination of using the wonder of all this medical literature that we have and then some common sense in terms of how you implement that. And, and that's really a key aspect because I've observed that people tend to go right to the most invasive, most exotic treatments. Everyone thinks that they need to, for example, using gluten-free dieting as an example, people think that if they have a problem with gluten, they have to eat like they have celiac. Mm. But that's like saying if you if you have a blood sugar of 103, you have to eat like you're an end-stage diabetic. Mm. Right? It just doesn't, you don't have to go to that level of rigor. If you want to, fine. Right? If you mm-hmm. want to, no, I'm not going to say that you shouldn't, but for a lot of people, the extra effort it takes to go from eating a gluten-reduced diet to a fully 100% gluten-free diet, there's a big chasm there of effort and mental anguish and, and social stress. So it's it's important to understand some of that nuance in terms of, okay, do you have to go all the way to full-blown eating like your celiac and never having any gluten? Or can you get away with some from time to time? I'm not saying make it a staple, but if you're out with friends and you want to have a beer or a slice of pizza, you can potentially have that. Mm. Right. A little I like, flexibility still. I like what you're saying. You sound a lot like somebody who's worked with a lot of people. And, mm-hmm. and, and the reason why I'm saying that is as trainers, when people ask us, what's the most effective workout or what's the, you know, what should I do to lose weight or whatever, we know that there's that other component of, is this individual going to adhere to this advice? Does it work with their lifestyle? And everybody's a little bit different. Right. Whereas people who have no experience working with other people yeah. will say something like, you know, here's your workout, Eliminate here's your meal all plan. This. Yeah. Exactly. Or, and this is what the, or this is what the research says is best, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. this is what's best. This is what they've studied. Do this. Without this taking into account. Yeah, all the other variables. All the other variables. And, and so I really like the way you're talking. I have to ask you because I follow some of the gut health literature that's coming out. I like to read about it quite a bit. I've had my own issues in the past. And it seems like the past few years the the research has exploded, or at least the results of a lot of research is exploding, and it's becoming more and more accepted mainstream. And they're finding now gut health connected to, I mean, everything, the, your, your, your moods even. You've been doing this for a long time. How long have you been practicing in this, in, in this particular special specialty? Almost eight years. So eight years ago, nobody was really talking about this kind of stuff uh, or at least, I don't know. Much were, less so. Much, much less so, yeah. It would have been very difficult to find a specialist, a gut health mm. specialist, eight years ago. And only, yeah, like... Well, outside of, of course, of gastroenterologists, but mm. someone like myself who's in the integrative medicine camp. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there, were, there was much less specialization. And I, and I think that's because you're seeing the field really grow, where now there's so much information that we, in my opinion, need to be specializing to a degree even with the natural therapies. And the natural therapies all kind of emanate from this philosophical trunk, if you will, of of diet and lifestyle, right? So there's always going to be that commonality. But then when you get into someone who goes deep into, let's say, Lyme disease compared to, or mass activation syndrome compared to someone in in gut health, that's where understanding the nuance is really important. And and don't get me wrong, a natural, let's just say general practitioner, for lack of a better term, the equivalent of a, of a natural general practitioner, 
they'll get you pretty far, mm-hmm. right? But there's always going to be those cases where the GP, the natural GP doesn't have in their toolkit what is needed to ameliorate the problem of the person presenting. So yes, we're, we're, there's more that we're learning. So we're having to specialize. And I think that's where natural medicine is going to continue to go is into this this realm of, of somewhat specialization. And that's exciting. But the, the question I was going to ask you is what made you decide to go? Eight years ago, there wasn't mm. a whole lot of people doing what you're doing. Right. Why'd you choose that? Why'd you go in that direction? Well, firstly, there was my experience. And we talked about this last time I was on, but in college, I went from feeling great to feeling pretty terrible. And it turned out that I had a parasite that was causing that problem. But before I found that out, I, I went on the internet. I read about all my symptoms. I thought I had low testosterone. I thought I had a low thyroid. I thought I had heavy metal toxicity. I thought I had adrenal fatigue. And so I, I did what I see a lot of people doing. Another reason why I wrote the book in the fashion that I did was try to save people from putting the cart before the horse, so to speak. And I spun my wheels with all these self-diagnoses and self-treatments. And it wasn't until I fixed my gut that I really saw improvement. And I carried that forward with me. And in practice, I've kept doing more of what has worked the best. And out of all the things I've looked into, I've done uh, training in Lyme. I've done training in, in heavy metal detox. Uh, I've done training in thyroid. The the two things that produce the most consistent and marked improvements in patients are optimizing their digestive health. There there are other things that can be helpful, definitely. But the most impactful by far and away in my mind was the therapies that were directed at gut health. And now we're seeing, to your earlier point, all these studies pouring in showing that probiotics can help reduce brain fog and um, dietary changes can help reduce immune activation and fixing one's gut can help with thyroid autoimmunity. I mean, there's a litany of examples that we could cite. And yeah, it's exciting to see the interest and this boom in research going in the direction that I'm positioned. And I feel really fortunate to be there. But in direct answer to your question, the gut therapies were just the most effective. What mm. do you what do you think our guts are worse today than they were 10 and 20 and 30 years yeah, ago? Yeah, it seems like it's going crazy. I, mean, I think our our general health is on a decline. Right. And you know, it's it's tough cuz I don't want to paint an overly um, you know, uh, pessimistic picture, but it does seem that as we've changed our environment to be more hygienic, and experienced some of the benefits that come because of that reduced infantile death and uh, prolonged lifespan. As we've come farther away from some of these dirt and germs and, and a more ancestral or hunter gatherer type lifestyle, there's been a biological trade off. And the, the, con, the con of that trade off is we're seeing more inflammatory and immune diseases that, that are a byproduct of that. So it's great when we can save a child through an, an emergency cesarean birth, but that does increase the probability of inflammatory and immune conditions later in their life because they miss out on that inoculation of bacteria as they pass through the vaginal canal. So I don't want to paint it as a criticism of medicine or the Western lifestyle. You know, we're making a decision and, and there's a pro and con we have to calculate. As part of that. Speaking it's, of pros and cons, talk a little bit more on that controversial topic you just went over right there with C-sections because I see that a lot and I just had a good friend of mine that had it and you know what what do you say to somebody who's considering even potentially having a C-section? Well, this is getting outside of my area of specialty, so I, I don't want to speak too far 
away from the body of literature that I'm familiar with, but I, I did recently interview a nurse midwife on my podcast, and, and she made a pretty compelling case for the fact that C-sections may be a bit overly done, right? And, and, I, and I think there's a case there to be made. Now, I choose my language very carefully. That's why I said emergency C-section. That's really where you're contending with potentially death. And, mm-hmm. and so uh, there's, in my mind, very little of an argument you can make against an emergency C-section. A you know proactive or elected C-section, there's nuance there that I'm not familiar with all the details regarding, but this midwife didn't make the case that it, it, it seems that they're being overly done and now there may be a pullback from doing mm. it that much. Be- or the, another method is they're doing vaginal swabs now and then coating the children in the mother's vaginal bacteria. So that may be a way to, to counteract that. But I, I do think there's evidence that supports they're being done in excess. Yeah, that's, uh, from what I've read on that whole process, it's the process of coming in to the hospital, um, being put on Pitocin, which makes the birthing process more painful. Then they give you an epidural because it's more painful, but now you have to be on your back, which right. makes birthing more more difficult. Right. And then boom, C-section becomes right. more I think in some hospitals, like half. How? Yeah, it's a, it's a cascade that yeah. seems to be initiated when you go to the hospital, whereas working with a doula or a midwife, mm-hmm. you don't start as quickly down that cascade of, of epidurals and mm-hmm. numbing agents and being restricted to bed rest. And uh, and she also makes a, this, this um, gal that I interviewed also made a good point that oftentimes people aren't given education ahead of time. So they go into the hospital and they're thinking that all these things are mandatory mm-hmm. and they don't understand that. Right. Nothing bad may happen if I don't elect to do this. It's just the way that they do right. it. But because you're in a hospital and there's people buzzing in and out and bells going off, you're in a very deleveraged and kind of fearful position. So this leads me to a question where I've read that we inherit quite a bit of our microbiome fingerprint, if you will, from our mothers. Oh, yeah. So my question is, you're talking about the the you know how Western societies in particular hyper clean and we may be reaping some of the benefits, but also some of the unintended uh, consequences of that. And they call it the, what is it? The clean hypothesis or something like that. There's a- The hygiene hypothesis. Hygiene hypothesis. Yeah. Or, Sorry. The, or the old friends, it's also known as. Yeah. So things are so clean and now we're getting autoimmune issues and we're getting gut issues as a result of our immune systems not being exposed to certain things. Is it, and it but it seems like it's getting worse faster. Is this because- mothers pass on their microbiome and because now mothers have maybe less diversity that it's just compounding? It seems to compound from generation to generation, but it's not the only factor, right? There's, there's pollution, there's food quality, there's stress, there's our more isolated type lifestyle that we're living, Mm. right? So there, I mean, I think it's multifactorial. Um, And if you're speaking about the, the insult on the microbiome specifically, that also seems to be getting worse, hmm. right? Because there used to be more farmers and more contact with farm. I was just home visiting my family in Massachusetts and I took my niece and nephew for a walk around the block and there was one point where there's this cul-de-sac and at the end of that cul-de-sac, there used to be all these woods. Now it's all houses, right? And so the the natural environment where we derive some of these bacteria that have an impact on our microbiota and our immune systems are, are drying up. So it's not only compounding biologically, but I think it's also compounding environmentally. Hmm. What role do, you know, modern inventions like glyphosates that are sprayed on GMOs, like what role do you think that plays in some of that stuff? Do you, do you tell patients to avoid GMO foods? Does it make a big difference? 
Well, so you asked a good question. This is something I talk about in the book to try to give people an answer to this question because sometimes people are, are struggling for an adequate solution to the, the kind of Gordian knot of, do I start first with organic or would I be better off having an organic TV dinner or fresh mm. vegetables that are non-organic? Sure. Right. And so the first thing I recommend people do is eat the right foods. Rather, rather than worrying about it being organic, I'd rather you eat fresh and foods that are, for lack of a better term, in alignment with the paleo diet or, or whatever diet plan we chose for them as they're going through the diet protocol aspect of mm-hmm. the book. Whole foods. Whole, yeah, right. whole, whole foods first that are compliant with the diet plan that you're going to be on. Then second would be organic foods. Now, in an ideal world, to your earlier point, we would do all of them, right? Mm-hmm. But experience teaches us that not everyone has the resources financially, yeah. yeah, financially or mentally or, or logistically to implement everything at once. You know, throw out all your Teflon, get a water filter, get an air filter, all organic, pasture, pasture raised. That's a tall order to go from if you're just trying to mm-hmm. stop eating as much bread and eat more vegetables yeah, and fish. Right? Eating fast food twice a day right. for the last 10 exactly. years, right? Exactly. So uh, we do lay out a hierarchy, but... First, you want to have whole foods. Then uh, after that, you can opt for either organic or locally grown. And I, I look at those on a similar kind of footing. Um, so if you can only invest in one thing, I would get the right foods, fresh, whole foods. Worry about organic and pasture-raised and all those things later as you feel like, okay, now I have these dietary changes down. They feel doable. They're somewhat habituated. Now, you know, what next challenge would I like to try to integrate? Now, that being said, uh, you do notice that glyphosates have an effect on people's guts. Is that, are you seeing that? I mean, I mean this is based a, off your experience, yeah, right? It's really hard to say because when do I have someone coming in saying, I had this wheat that's been sprayed with glycophosphate yeah. compared to this one that hasn't. And I was attempting for a little while there to try to do a review of the literature to try to compare observed rates of celiac in countries with higher to lower um, use of of these certain insecticides or, or herbicides, but um, I don't know if we have a, a robust enough body of literature to answer that. So it, it is something that I had on my list, um, and I may I may try to tackle that again. Mm-hmm. And if anyone listening is affiliated with the university and, and thinks they they have uh, interest to do that, I'd be I'd be happy to kind of pool our resources. But when I initially reached out to one of the universities that I work with that's assisted me in publishing a, a another, well, we haven't published it yet, but we essentially got IRB approval for another study and we'll be initiating that soon. We've been delayed because of uh, an incredibly hard time obtaining placebos, but that's another story. Um, when we started digging into some of the details, it didn't seem we had enough of a data set to answer that question. Okay. And so that's why I try to be very, again, very careful in the language that I use because I see the problem occurring where people make inflated, and I'm not saying you're doing this, but people in general make these inflated claims. And then what ends up happening is people get a far worse picture of the way things actually are because no one is is trying to really be you know, conservative and discerning in the language that they use. And, well, and celiac disease is, is a good example of that. You're, that's one of the things I like about you is you're very uh, calculated with what you say and very careful with how you say it just because you want to be very accurate. And I really appreciate that. What are some of the biggest, um, I guess, uh, uh, what are some of the, the, the biggest problems that people are finding with food? Like single things like 
is it gluten? I mean, you've mentioned gluten a couple times. Yeah, let's tackle that. Cause yeah, because that's a big one, right? Like yeah. I, I read an article. People love to send me this kind of shit. Well, they'll send me a study that says gluten intolerance doesn't exist. Hmm. Or, you know, this news, this study shows that it isn't a gluten intolerance. It's not real except for celiacs. Right. And I, I, I know that's false because I'm one of those people that reacts to gluten, but I don't have celiacs. Like, mm-hmm. What's the deal with gluten? Well, that's yeah, it's a long long answer, but I'll give you a few of the most relevant strokes. When when you hear people say that gluten intolerance is not a thing, they, they're probably citing this one study that found that it was actually a FODMAP intolerance that attributed, that was um, that is the, one. The, the, the causative factor for the reaction and not the gluten itself. Now, we also review this in the book. There have essentially been and this may have changed since about a year ago because the the body of literature here is evolving quite quickly, but there have been five randomized control trials looking to establish is non-celiac gluten sensitivity an issue or not. And, and that's a condition where you don't have celiac, but you have a you think you have a problem with gluten, right? I get bloated, I get headaches, I get joint pain, whatever. Four of those five studies in a placebo-controlled, double-blinded fashion did find that it was in fact the gluten that caused the reaction. Mm-hmm. One study did find it was not the gluten, but it was the FODMAPs. So this is why being careful in your language is important because you could misrepresent those studies, the, the, that one low FODMAP study, if you didn't look in context of the greater body of literature, you could potentially be confused in terms of what that means. So it means that both of these things are an issue. And, and let me tie this to another study. There was a multicenter study in Italy that looked at 12,225 patients, and you had a group of gastroenterologists who were really trying to answer this question, and they comprised a 60-point assessment, including questionnaires, lab tests, and physical examination to try to assess what was the prevalence and what were the symptoms and associated conditions that occur with non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And essentially what they found was a 3% occurrence in that population of non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Now, 12,000 patients is a good sample size, but it was in Italy. And there may, I I don't know this to be true, there may be less glycophosphate use in Europe than there is the U.S. I've heard that. I have not fact-checked it. And unless I have fact-checked it, I do not believe it because... You just you can't believe what you hear. You have to check these. Have things. you heard it from other patients too? Because I've heard clients will be like, "I can't eat bread in America," so I'm, or pasta, I guess, and then I go, "I'm getting, yeah. I'm getting to that." Yeah. So my suspicion is that people have been indoctrinated. Not everyone, okay, not everyone, but I think there's a fair proportion of the population in the U.S. that have been indoctrinated into thinking you can't have any gluten. Mm. But in Europe, it's different, and you can. And they've they've never adequately tested it in the U.S., and when mm. they go to Europe, they're actually discovering they don't have as much of a problem with gluten as they thought they did, A, or B, they're on vacation, they're less stressed, mm. they're sleeping more, All and they're right. having fun, and you're seeing the lifestyle component reflect. And wow. I see that I see that quite a bit where patients come into my clinic afraid of food, and finally someone in a position of authority oh, wow. says, you can eat some gluten, you can expand your diet, and they go, Just the stress oh, causes oh my, them to react. Oh my God, like yeah. I stopped stressing out about food, I'm eating more, and I'm feeling so much better. So hmm. I don't know if I fully buy that. I'm open to that, and that's the that's the, the question I wanted to answer with my previous inquiry into this issue. But it didn't seem like there was an adequate data set to answer it. But continue, you know, continuing on with with this one study, three um, percent were found to have non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Estimates in the U.S. range from 0.6 to six percent. So there could be more of this in the U.S., but 
I don't know if we have an adequate data set to fully answer that question, but 3% to 6% isn't a huge change. It, it tells you that non-celiac gluten sensitivity is an issue, but is it an issue that affects 90% of the population, as some people would probably have you believe? No, it, it's probably more so the minority than it is the majority. Mm. So I think that's really important to keep in mind. Now, they also looked at autoimmune conditions because one of the first things that comes up is, well, I've heard that if you have an autoimmune condition, you should never have gluten. Well, is that really true? They found that 14% of the people with non-celiac gluten sensitivity, so it's 14% of that 3%, right? It's not 14% of the entire population, right? 3% were found to have non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Of that 3%, 14 had autoimmune conditions, so that's not a lot, not right? At all. Yes, but it, but it is documented and it is legitimate. So we you need to see both sides of it, and of that, about nine percent of that fourteen percent had autoimmune thyroid. So some people say, I've heard that if you have autoimmune thyroid, you can never have any gluten. There is an association between thyroid autoimmunity and celiac disease, and I think it's the most common autoimmune condition. Next, you know, next to celiac disease in terms of the, the relation, and thyroid autoimmunity is the most prevalent autoimmune condition. So, yes, it, it is an issue. But should you blindly avoid gluten if you have thyroid autoimmunity without ever doing some elimination reintroduction to see what your relationship is? No, you, you should figure this out through your own experience. Now, there's two other things here that are really key. One... It was found, so let me take a step back and, and just frame this. People often say, well, I've heard that if I eat gluten, that could fuel this autoimmune process that may not cause any symptoms for months or years. Have you guys heard that? Mm, so if I start eating gluten now, five, three years from now, I'm going to have a right. higher chance. Yeah, of- you're, you're fueling this underlying inflammatory right. process that won't manifest symptomatically for years. Okay, that may be true, and I, and I am open to that if we prove that. But in my clinical experience, and also with this study finding, I don't think that's fully supported, at least not for the vast majority of patients. In the same study with the 12,225 patients, of which 3% noticed they had non-celiac gluten sensitivity, over 90% of people who reacted to gluten reacted within 24 hours. So that tells you that you'd know pretty that you would right, most, right, right. and yeah. it makes sense that if you were fueling active damage to your body, you would feel most likely you'd feel some kind of symptom associated with that. Mm. Now the symptoms can be very diverse. For some people, it could be a skin reaction. For some people, it could be a neurological reaction, like feeling incoordinated, uh, a bit ataxic, or feeling like they have brain fog or slurred speech. For other people, it may be constipation or diarrhea or fatigue or joint pain. So. There's not a symptom, but if you notice, all of a sudden you're having a symptom pop up within 24 hours of your gluten reintroduction, Mm -hmm. then that's pretty safe to say you should be avoiding gluten. Now, can someone not have an intolerance to a food, then develop an intolerance, and then through working through it, it go away? Yeah, so that's actually a great transition to the the final point I wanted to make from this study. The same study found that 30% of people had their reaction to gluten that was attributable to something else, meaning small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, FODMAP intolerance, or some other problem in the gut that was causing them to be reactive to the gluten in the first place. So when they get rid of that... So when you when they fixed their gut, 30% of patients who had a reaction to gluten 
as we label non-celiac gluten sensitivity, we're able to then eat gluten and be devoid of symptoms. Mm. Whoa, that's very interesting. Yeah. And, Why? I, and I see I see quite a bit of that. Uh, so I think more people can eat gluten than think they can. Now, so I want to be careful in saying, because I will hear the, you know, the, the gluten-free zealots you know, getting angry. <laughs> I'm not saying that some people do not derive enormous benefit from going gluten-free, but... You're not seeing what I'm seeing, which are people coming into the clinic decimated by fear regarding gluten mm. and because they're trying to live a 100% gluten-free lifestyle. So I think for the majority of people, a gluten-reduced diet is probably a pretty safe place to be. Meaning, well, you're not even saying that they, you, you wouldn't pick that as one of the few things to look into right away, right? I imagine right. that's still one of the major- It's cult. one of the first things I start people right, off with. Right, so it's, it's just that I think people take it to an extreme level like they do with yeah. everything. Because right? if you had to guess- what percentage of people would you guess, based upon what you hear, right, the the you know, ethos of opinion in natural medicine, would be the percentage of people who can't eat gluten? It'd be high, high right? Very high. Well, one of the first things that, that people go on when they're trying to fix their gut health is a, a grain-free, typically, diet. Not just gluten-free, but grain-free. Right. Which I support. Right? I support yeah. that. But what we want to do on the tail end of that is then go into a reintroduction to find what your right. personal diet should be. Mm -hmm. Some people will have the short end of the stick there, and they'll have to be very careful to avoid gluten. Mm. But other people will have the ability to take some liberty. And we want those people not to be encumbered by any unnecessary dietary restrictions. That's well, all I'm driving at. Something you said that was uh, really interesting was how you could have an underlying condition that is fueling or driving a particular food intolerance. And it makes me wonder how many people out there are managing an issue that they don't know the root of. They're managing it by eliminating all these foods and like, well, I can no longer eat those foods. Right. Not knowing they have SIBO or something else. Right. That is is driving that. How, uh, is that common? I, I think it's yeah. I mean, it's fairly common, and that's why in the the action plan in my book, we start off with diet, but we essentially walk through a reevaluation at the end of the dietary step, and we say yes or no. Do you feel like you are at least seventy percent improved? And if you are not, we're going to move forward because what can end up happening is people can try to force your point, a dietary solution to a non-dietary problem, right? If you have SIBO, and again, it's not all about SIBO, it's just, it's a very uh, commonly discussed topic right now, so I'm using that as one of our proxies for gut mm -hmm. imbalances, but there are many like types of dysbiosis or imbalances in the life in your gut that can occur. But if you have SIBO, if you have significant SIBO, you can eat around that, right? You can eat a a low FODMAP, you know, a strict low FODMAP diet, and you can do fairly well with that. But there's a chance that you won't have to eat as strict of a low FODMAP diet or a paleo diet or whatever it is that's providing relief if you clean up other problems in your gut. So that's why we have our step one diet and end lifestyle. And if at the end of that you're not feeling like you have at least improved by 70%, then we keep working through the mm -hmm. steps. Have you had a lot of patients come in that you just know there's a lot of psychological factors that, that contribute to, you know, what you're, you're trying to address things in their diet, but at the same time, you can pretty much tell that a lot of it's derived from their, oh, yeah. their state. Yeah. And that, that's why I'm so, as you can probably tell, passionate about giving people accurate and, and very well thought out advice. Because I, I think we've gotten to a tipping point now where people are not being responsible with the language that they use and the accuracy of the recommendations that they're making, and it's making people think they have problems when they don't have problems. Mm. And so you're absolutely right. I see 
more of that than I'd like to admit that I see. And that's why I um, tried to have um, written into the tapestry of the book this message that is empowering and non-indoctrinating. I don't want people to walk away from the book feeling afraid of food or dependent on supplements because you shouldn't be, right? Um, But, you know, when someone writes a book, and this is not a dig on anyone who's done this, but when someone writes a book with 101 reasons why gluten is bad and a plan to avoid gluten, and they don't give you this broader context, then people walk away thinking, I can never have gluten. Right. Mm -hmm. And then they, but uh, three months months later, they read about how if you have bacterial overgrowth, which they think they have because they heard a symptom of bacterial overgrowth is bloating, then you shouldn't eat FODMAPs. So now they're gluten-free and they're low FODMAP. Then six months later, they read about the autoimmune paleo diet and how they can't have any nightshades because that may fuel their autoimmune condition and they have thyroid autoimmunity. And so, so like now, two foods left. So, yeah. And so they keep, <laughs> they keep now they're the accruing diet. All, all these yeah. dietary restrictions yeah, and no one's ever given them the context of saying, listen, here's the plan we're going to go through and we're going to reevaluate and at the end of every step. And then as part of this plan, we are going to broaden your diet. We're going to try to broaden your diet as much as we can and get you off of all the supplemental supports to try to find the minimum amount of supplemental support and the maximum amount of food you can include in your diet. Well, that just mm. sounds like f- responsible doctoring. Yeah. Right. I got a question for you. Integrity. Yeah. We've had a couple guests on the show who eat a carnivore diet, and I've seen this all over social media now where people literally only eat meat, no vegetables, no fruits, no nuts, no nothing, and they get improvements in health. Now, I for I don't think it's the because the, the diet is a healthy diet. I personally think they have immune issues with lots of different foods or maybe some other gut stuff. What do you think is going on? Am I, do you think I'm on the right track or do you think that there's yeah. something to the carnivore diet? Yeah, I think I think the carnivore, carnivore diet is an untenable dietary recommendation to make in the long term. I'm open to it as a short-term diet to allow one to give the gut a chance to heal, to reduce the consumption of some of these foodstuffs that may be more noxious to the gut. And it does seem that plant matter can be noxious to the gut. There are compounds in plants, perhaps more so than any other type of food, that are noxious or can be noxious to the gut. Like what, what are some, some of these compounds? Well, you have things like, like lectins, lectins and, and oh, okay. saponins, and then even things that aren't designed by the plant to be noxious can irritate people with sensitive guts, like those with SIBO and IBS and FODMAPs, right? So um, so I think if you improve someone's gut health, then they won't need the carnivore diet in the long term. And if you look at the anthropological data, the the best study I know of that was a worldwide assessment of hunter-gatherer diets did find that, yes, maybe 50 as high as 60% of calories came from animal products, but that's 50 to 60%. Not 100. That's not 100%. Now, I'm also open to the occasional exception, the 1% of the population that may have such progressed immune problems that they can't eat anything else. But I would I would be suspicious if someone like that may have something akin, well, well, firstly, foundationally, make sure they don't have something like SIBO, H. pylori, dysbiosis, and, and just aren't in need of a gut healing protocol. Second to that, an FMT, I think, may be very helpful for someone who's gone through and not responded fully to all the other foundational therapies, so not putting the FMT first, putting that more toward the end of the list, or 
undergoing treatment for mast cell activation syndrome where people have a very, very overzealous immune systems and may need direct immune therapy or even using something like helminth therapy, which is more experimental. Oh, that's uh, that's um, where people give themselves parasites and mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's much more experimental, but if we're looking at someone who can only eat meat, something is wrong there, right? And, mm-hmm. and, so, and so something is need is in need of uh, rectification. And so that's where these other therapies, uh, I think, would be good to look at. Is, it, is the helmet therapy, is that becoming more of a thing now? I read a book on that maybe three or four years ago. Yeah. And it was really fascinating. And the people that they were that were doing it were people with really bad, like Crohn's disease, like really, really bad. Yeah, you don't do this if you're just a little bit bloated. Yeah, <laughs> is, there new, is there new science coming out on this? And this, so for the audience who doesn't know what I'm talking about, this is where they give people, they literally give them parasites and the... Mm. Through that process, should, the body's should, immune we system. Clarify, we should clarify that term, though, because it, there there are things that may have been stereotypically labeled as parasites, okay, but they may not actually be parasitic. Okay, interesting. Right? Because we're we're noticing that some of these worms and and worms are the really the the uh, life form in question here. They may have developed a symbiotic relationship with the host, not dissimilar to some bacteria. Mm where they cause a localized immunosuppression so that they can live. But we may have evolved requiring some degree of immunosuppression in the gut to prevent overly zealous immune attacking. So they may not be, quote unquote, they may not function as parasites. They may be things that we used to label as parasites. That's interesting. But they may not be better classified as as symbiotes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We we need them, in other words. So when, when, what's the, is there any new research on this to show that it's... You know, there's not a ton of research here because, as you can imagine, the ability to get approval for these studies is... Uh, <laughs> is, is you got to go to Mexico. Yeah. Uh. But we, we did have um, a... Uh, I want to... God, what is, I'm blanking on his name now. We interviewed three worm specialists on our podcast. Um, and uh, there was a researcher from Duke, William... Gosh, I'm blanking on his name. I'm so, William, William Parker from Duke. And... He did what I thought was one of the more interesting studies where they did a, a assessment of patients who were self-treating with worms. And, and they did find that there, there is a, a documentable clinical effect for these people. Um, but it's, it's challenging because there are, there are different types of worms, just like there are different types of probiotics. Uh, we interviewed another, I guess you could say, worm specialist, um, Aaron, or I'm sorry, um, God, Aglietti was his last name, um, Sorry, we have had so many people in my podcast. Yeah, no the problem. Names are, uh, Aglietti was, was uh, I, think, I think his name was Garen Aglietti, and he's in Mexico, and he's very passionate about worm therapy, but also very passionate that worms are as individual as people. And 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 so how we use those is, is fairly individualized. So there's a lot here to learn, and I don't profess to know everything because there's there's not a lot of clinical literature to to pull from i have had a handful of patients who've elected to do their own self-experimentation because unfortunately where the hell do they get the worms i i can't advise anyone to do anything because of the the legal, legal environment yeah local, local bait store um, <laughs> yeah. so there there are two places you can obtain hdc through a, a website known as biome restoration and you can uh, wow you can buy worms online mm-hmm. I, i've actually done two inoculations myself wait a minute wow. so hold on a second Re- rewind 
You bought worms online and ate them. Yeah, how do they come? Are they like in it's the very, capsules? It's or? very, it's very similar to a a probiotic. I'm sorry, Nancy O'Hara is a pediatrician we also had on our podcast, who I thought gave the best iteration of of clinical guidelines, and she she uses these in her pra- in her pediatrics practice, and she sees about a fifty percent response rate with, Whoa, with these worms. Whoa, fifty percent. In a select population. So, so you I, took I so that. you took these? Mm-hmm. What happened to you? Now, the, the first time I, I took them, I, I took a dose that was probably higher than I should have, and I, I didn't understand all the nuance until I had a chance to interview Dr. O'Hara, who, and this is why it's important not to talk in a topic that you don't have clinical familiarity <laughs> with, right? Um, but I wasn't advising. I never do that. I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't advising anyone like on this. I, I was, yeah, I, I was just doing my own self-experimentation. Um, but- she starts people with a lower dose and gradually stair steps them up. Okay. Um, I did third units of the uh, HDC helminth, which is the medical term for for worm. And what can happen if you take too high of a dose or you have an immune system that's very ramped up is you can have a histamine reaction when you first take it. Oh, she so an allergic and, reaction? And so I had irritability and brain fog and fatigue. Now I took an antihistamine and I took an Advil it went away within 10 minutes and never came back since. Mm. I don't really have a lot of symptoms. Uh, you know, I have little things that we all deal with, but nothing nothing that I felt, felt like it was a good gauge to say this is working or this is not working. So I ended up doing two inoculations and then there was other things I wanted to experiment with, so I, I jumped ship. I, about six months ago, did one additional inoculation of 10 units and I felt nothing. I felt no histamine response. But according to Dr. O'Hara, those who have the most wound up immune systems tend to have the most histamine reactions out of the gate. Um, so without getting too far afield into a, a, an area of therapy that isn't really going to provide people much relief, um, I, you know, I think there's something interesting there. And there's, there's these other therapies for people who, example, can only tolerate meat. I would say an FMT, working with a provider that can guide you through helminthic therapy or mass cell activation treatments, which essentially start with over-the-counter antihistamine agents, can be very helpful. But this this is going to a class of people that is the vast minority. Right, right. There, there's a lot more, uh, you know, entry-level steps that will give people quite a bit of benefit. Wow. Mike, what it, go ahead. How, how often do you get questions about, like, kids? Like, raising kids today with all the processed foods and sugar and the shit that we have out there, do you get a lot of parents that ask you, like, what am I supposed to feed my kid? Uh, I don't get as many parents asking what to feed their kids as I do parents saying, I have a child with IBS, I have a child with behavioral issues. Oh, wow. and, and for those children, the same things that happen to adults happen to children. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've seen happen with children that's different than in adults is, and I I see this in a a population of of children with behavioral disorders where their parents read about the GAPS diet. Have you heard of that? Mm -hmm. Um, So essentially the GAPS diet is a diet that's very heavy in fermented foods. It's gut and psychology syndrome, I I believe it stands for. Um, uh, Natasha Campbell, I believe is the author. And it's a healthy diet. It's like a paleo diet combined with a lot of fermented foods. And that can be very helpful for some people. However, in fermented foods, you have D-lactate, D and L-lactate, which are, which are these uh, compounds that are a byproduct of bacterial fermentation. Children have a much more difficult tr- time metabolizing D and L-lactate than adults do. Well, why is that relevant? 
because D-lactate, when it builds up, can cause brain fog, irritability, alterations of mood. And if you combine that with someone who also has small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which will itself, we think, release DL-lactate, then you can fall into the syndrome of these kids just being saturated in these these compounds that can cause irritability and and brain fog and, and tantrums and what have you. So by getting them off of fermented foods, and if they also have it, treating their dysbiosis and or bacterial overgrowth, we've seen some pretty remarkable improvements in behaviors in, in some of these children. Yeah, I was going to say, like, are parents bringing their kids in and thinking, oh, they have ADHD, change their diet, gets better, goes away, stuff like that? Well, sometimes what happens is it gets better for a little while, and then it starts to get worse. Because at first, the ga- if they're using the GAPS diet specifically, mm. um, because at first, I think the, the probiotics in the GAPS diet help to support and correct any dysbiosis. But then they hit this uh, the other part of the U. And they oh, the start, threshold where they get too much of that. And now they start building up this DL lactate and probably yeah. also histamine, and now they're just saturated in it. Uh, and they need to stop the intake of that for a while and let these things drain out of their system. Whoa. What is the, the newest, uh, what is the, some of the cutting-edge research coming out? Because the last thing that I, I read that was really mind-blowing to me was it's, it's all, the, all this research coming out on how our gut health affects our, our, our mental state. And then they discovered that there's basically a direct connection between the the gut and the brain, mm-hmm. whereas we thought that it was always separated by the the blood brain barrier. But I guess there's a direct highway now through the lymphatic system. What is what is some of the newest research coming out? Like, what is it looking like? Well, I mean, I, I can't say that I'm on the forefront of of every nuance there because there's an important clarifying remark to make even in that regard, which is there's a difference between clinical studies that exhibit some kind of gut-brain connection and mechanistic findings. Does that kind of make sense? Explain so, deeper. So uh, we uh, could uh, see that, that that there's a connection. It doesn't mean that it actually... Yeah, so it's one thing to be able to say that when someone has this type of bacterial overgrowth, we see an expression change in this pathway in the brain, or we see an, an upregulation of this gene transcription, or we see more of this compound being released. That's that's some of the probably the most cutting edge, which which is just starting to piece together some of these mechanisms. Meaning when this is going on in the gut, counterpoint, what is happening in the brain? That I'm not up to snub on because I'm looking at here we have a group of patients with IBS who also had depression mm. and we treated them with this and here is what happened. Right? And and this is where I focus on because I, I've learned that as interesting as these mechanistic observations are and, and as important as they are for advancing the science, they don't give me anything to do differently tomorrow in the clinic. And I would also caution that if you do too much treatment in drawing inferences from what we see in mechanism studies, the probability that you may hurt someone is, is high because until we've run that experiment in humans, we don't know what's going to happen. And I think people with IBS or other gut issues who were given lots of prebiotics or high prebiotic diets because in theory that should have helped them. And then the majority of patients that tends to flare them is a glaring example. I'm of, one of those. Like you, they'll right. say, oh, we eat lots of prebiotics, with the, which are the starches yeah. and stuff that feed. We talked about last, last time I was here, we talked about Yeah, that. and you eat, and I'll eat that and that'll jack me up. Right, exactly. So that's why, you know, it's, I get it as, as a patient, it's it's attractive to say, oh my God, like there was mm-hmm. there was more of this compound that's anti-inflammatory like there are when you eat prebiotics, right? Yeah. Um, I'm going to go out and do that. And I've had plenty of patients who have gone out and done that. 
and they've felt terrible after doing so. There are some patients that that will be helpful for, but the point I'm making is we want to look at human clinical trials or or at least outcome studies before we start intervening. Mm -hmm. Now, to the point of intervening, I have seen low histamine diets be very helpful for people with otherwise non-responsive neurological symptoms, brain fog, uh, including insomnia, um, word search, um, irritability, fatigue, all are symptoms uh, of many, but of histamine overload. And what's what can be problematic there is sometimes people inadvertently go onto a higher histamine diet when they go paleo, especially if they go paleo low carb. What's that from all the high histamine containing foods like like, like avocado, <laughs> tuna, any kind of jerky, spinach, kombuchas, anything fermented, cured meats. Right, so it's possible that you could be eating a lot of this, and in fact, I had a period where sounds like Sal's diet. Oh man, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I had a period where I was having brain fog and irritability for no reason, and I just remember, yeah, I'd be sitting at my desk on a beautiful sunny day, and all of a sudden, like half an hour after I eat, I feel irritable and fatigued and foggy, and I'm saying, "What the heck is going on?" Right, I, I had this morning, I had two eggs, avocado you know, sauerkraut. And then I just was sipping on a, a kombucha. I didn't realize it at the time, but I was just saturating myself in histamine because every meal had a high histamine food. So that's one thing that can be very effective. It only takes a week or less to run a low histamine diet experiment. And by the way, in, in Healthy Gut, Healthy You, we talk about the low histamine diet and we also link to a low histamine diet guide. So we have, we have bases covered there for an mm-hmm, easy, mm-hmm. do this for one week. If you if you feel better, then just be mindful to restrict or reduce your dietary histamine intake. It doesn't mean you have to be crazy. You can never have any histamine. It's just like pouring water into a sink. You can't pour the water in faster than the sink can drain. So you can't eat more histamine than your body can clear. What Mike? what about a histamine? Uh, what about an antihistamine? Would that benefit somebody in that particular situation? Like if they, if they took like Claritin or. And by the way, I'm saying this as someone who's been a little bit histamine sensitive, sipping on a kombucha, right? So, oh, yeah. I was just so going to you, say you're drinking our, 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 our brew, brew doctor right now. Yeah. And how often would you recommend somebody like drink something like that? Because I know you can overdo that too. I've seen right. I, well, so that So I used to eat a high histamine food at every meal. And when I, when I took a dietary assessment of what I was eating, I discovered that I was eating a high histamine food at every meal. Because it's kind of like the lazy man's paleo, right? Tuna, avocado, yep. cured meats, jerky, spinach. Yeah. So now I just simply try to not do that. This is literally all I had to do. There, there was no complicated math involved, and that made a huge difference. So everyone will have to find their own threshold. Also, your intestinal lining secretes enzymes that help you break down histamine. So the healthier your gut, the better you are at metabolizing histamine. So as to your earlier or our earlier point, if you improve someone's gut health, they'll have less dietary restrictions that they'll have to worry about. Um, but regarding histamine specifically, I think the easiest way to figure that out is just have someone do a low histamine diet for a week and then do a reintroduction to see where their threshold mm-hmm. is. But in the context of also working through a broader program to improve their gut health. Because if you have an active inflammatory burden in your intestines that's damaging your villi, that secrete the enzymes to help you break down histamine, you're never going to be able to eat that much histamine until you get rid of that inflammatory factor, damaging your intestines, lowering your ability to break down histamine. So that seemed like a really complicated answer to maybe not drink a kombucha every single day. 
Yeah. Well, not, or not <laughs> yeah, just yeah, not having everything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but coming back to the brain thing, there, there's also been one meta-analysis, and a, a meta-analysis is, a, is essentially one study that summarizes the results of the existing clinical trials, very, very high-level scientific evidence, that found that probiotics have a measurable positive impact on both anxiety and depression. Mm. So these are the types of things that I think are important. Looking at the mechanism is very interesting, but that's for researchers to then say, okay, here's a consistent relationship that we're seeing. And a way we could intervene is by then setting up a clinical trial, giving an agent that lowers this or increases that or modulates this. Then they have the clinical trial. And if that clinical trial works, someone like me is watching the clinical trial outcomes and saying, ah, now we can bring this into the clinic and use it. Mm-hmm. What about the histamine uh, blocker or histam- antihistamine drugs I asked earlier? Would that help in that particular situation? And, and, and so, yes, they, they, they may. They, they wouldn't be the first place I would go because, again, someone may just be eating too much dietary histamine. If someone has something like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or leaky gut or, or damage to their gut, then that may be causing them to not do a, a, a good job of clearing it themselves. But as we go on the continuum of people with mild health conditions toward more severe, some people may need ongoing antihistamine medications like cetirizine or loratadine, uh, like Benadryl, Zyrtec, things yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. And that's when I mentioned mast cell activation syndrome earlier. For some of these patients who are exquisitely sensitive, then they may need to work with a specialist of which we've had on two times now, Dr. Lawrence Afrin, who's a pioneer in this work, who um, would would essentially build for them a custom protocol of either antihistamine agents, which can be over the counter, mm-hmm. or mast cell activating, um, sorry, mast mast cell stabilizing agents, which are mostly prescription, that can help calm down their overzealous immune system. Um, so. Yes, someone could start with it with an easy protocol of just experimenting with an over-the-counter antihistamine, and that may help them. But I would do that only in the context of first trying to improve your gut health more broadly. And then there are protocols that have been developed mm. for how to use these antihistamines in a more uh, you know, precise manner in the longer term if someone still has these immune type reactions every time they eat or just kind of all the time. Yeah, otherwise it's a Band-Aid, right? right? If you don't fix the root, then it's just right. a Band-Aid. And some people will need a Band-Aid. Even after fixing the root, they'll need a Band-Aid, but, and that's okay. That, and that's the other thing that sometimes throws people a challenge where they feel better on a drug, but philosophically they don't want to be on a drug. But if you've, if you've addressed the root, there are some people that will need that additional support. And for some people, you just have to say, okay, I'm okay with it and not, not, Prevent yourself from undergoing a treatment that may help you, even though, um, or, or just because you have this philosophical preference not to ever use. Of course, treatment. of course. One of the best things I've ever done for more recently for my the health of my gut is I do a prolonged fast every month now. I do a a forty eight or seventy two hour fast, and it's one of the best things I've ever done personally for myself. Why, why, why is that helping me so much? And have you used fasting with your patients? And yep, what seems to be the deal with that? Is it just because it gives me a break? I mean, the way I figure it is, you know, I'm 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 killing off old, you know old cells. Stem cells get stimulated when I refeed. Those stem cells get turned into new cells, which tend to be less autoimmune or less prone to be autoimmune. But that's just a that's just my own speculation. Or I'm sure there's a degree of that happening, and I don't know if we've if we know what one mechanism predominates the benefit that is is derived from fasting but they're probably multifold 
Uh, and, and I should mention, just I want to try to give the listener kind of the, the context here. As part of step one in the Healthy Go Healthy You protocol, we talk about meal frequency and fasting because that would be a foundational issue, right? Mm. Just like you said, you derive huge benefit from periodic fasting. Mm -hmm. So before we have someone do, let's say, herbal antimicrobials to kill SIBO, let's make sure that's not just a, a lack of fasting that's, right. that's holding them back. Right? <laughs> yeah, you're oversaturating yourself all the time. How about let's just back off a little exactly, bit? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Now, on the other side of the coin, some people need to eat more frequent meals, right? Because some people fast too much and they start getting irritable and they start being fatigued and not sleeping well and having insomnia because they, they're drinking a ton of caffeine and they're, not, and they're fasting a ton. So there's a balance to be struck. Hmm. But we do have one clinical trial and IB, it may not be a clinical trial, maybe more so an observation, but we have documented evidence showing a favorable impact with fasting and IBS and an IBD. And we have data showing, because there's the question embedded in this topic, which is, doesn't skipping a meal damage your metabolism? And the majority of the data has found no impact on metabolism, but a, some of the data suggests a slight benefit. So if you look at all the data at large, the majority of the data show a negligible benefit. There are some studies showing a metabolic benefit. So we can say for your metabolism, fasting is neutral to beneficial, but it does not seem to be supported that it's detrimental. But why it works is likely, like you said, stimulation of apoptosis and stem cell stimulation. There's also likely a partial mechanism of not being exposed to food stuff that may be irritating your gut. Mm -hmm. It's like Excuse giving me. it a break. Right, giving it a break. Um, those are probably the, the two predominant. You may also make the argument that if someone has something like a fungal or a bacterial overgrowth, you're depriving those the food they need to proliferate. That could be another argument. A fourth could be that fasting stimulates motility, which helps sweep out bacterial and fungal overgrowths. Um, it stimulates this, this essentially this, this peristaltic wave known as a migratory motor complex where the intestines contract. And as they contract, it just kind of sweeps all of any of the leftover debris. This is probably why the first meal after a long fast, you get the, you get the, I mean, basically diarrhea. It's like, comes out real quick. Do we, do we consider the, di the digestive process an actual stress on the body? Do we consider that or no? That's a good question. Because um, the reason why I ask that is I feel like it's so much simpler than that. When you look at all the systems of the body, um, if you're constantly stressing it all the time, it's constantly having to work, yep. then it would be the most obvious thing to me to give it a break every once in a while, just like every other system of the body, for it to be most optimal. Yeah, no, good, good question. I had never really thought about is digestion a stressor, but... Yeah, I would think it's it's a healthy stressor, right? Just like exercise, right? But it, um, or even breathing, right? The oxidation is, is a byproduct mm -hmm. of breathing. Oxygen can be, uh, for lack of a better term, inflammatory because it's oxidizing. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, and we we know that you need to burn more calories when you digest food because of the energy that is utilized. So yeah, I I guess you could make the argument that digestion is a stressor if someone's gut is overly stressed, you can take some stress off of the gut by fasting. Which seems to me that in the day and age that we live in is more common than not because we are most Americans. Yeah, nobody are, fasts. Right. Most Americans are over consuming and sitting down yeah. and having food delivered to them and not, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I just feel like uh, it seems that simple to me that that would be that beneficial to and just- Especially the bodybuilding community because this, right. this was a tough pill for me to swallow initially because I came- I don't want to say it came from a bodybuilding background, but that's where 
in my you come from the two uh, eat every two hours eat eat every two to three hours kind of kind of camp which worked very well for me but i I think when i was going through my gut problems if i knew about fasting and some of these other things i would have been able to heal so much more quickly right right i 100 agree what if you look at the book right now okay what is the most power if i had to pick one chapter in that book what do you think is the most powerful and impactful chapter you have in your book jeez that's like asking to choose your kids. Like, yeah, which, which kid do you right, love the most? <laughs> right. I know it's full of all kinds of stuff, but think from a practical standpoint, when you were writing it, what do you feel like everybody needs to read this piece right here? Well, I, I, let me answer that with like maybe three. I'm going to break it down. To like That's a, fine. One That's, A, one B, one C. That's fine. So if someone is still working on their diet, read the chapter on diet. Right. If someone's already done paleo and they've already maybe done low FODMAP, then I would read the chapter on step two, which so step one is is all on diet. Step two are the therapies that you do after diet, like probiotics and enzymes. And if someone's already done diet and probiotics, then I would read the chapter on step three, which is the next escalation of therapy, which are antimicrobial therapies to help correct any kind of dysbiosis. So it's even written in in your opinion chronologically for how someone should should actually no, go exactly. about it. I mean the the whole book, you know, first we go through explaining all these things. Like if you haven't heard of these diets, here they are. If you haven't heard of probiotics, here they are. If you haven't heard of antimicrobials, here they are. Here's what they do, here's how they can help. And then we organize all that at the end into this action plan called the Great Innate. And it's eight steps, but not everyone has to go through all eight. Got it. But let's say you're in generally good health, but you're a little bit bloated, right? You may only need to go through step one and then you go right to maintenance, which is step six. Got it. Right. But if someone has very progressed IBS, they may have to go through step one, step two, step three, step four, step five, and then into maintenance, mm-hmm. which is six. Um, so yeah, it's it's meant to be a book that can help someone with mild symptoms all the way through severe and it steers you along the process. So not everyone does all eight because that would be wasteful. For you, it would be wasteful if you were doing the same amount of stuff as someone with severe colitis. Right, right. Right. So it's it's individualized where we check in with you at the end of each step and we say, okay, if you're feeling this way, go here. If you're mm. feeling that way, go there. So now, and do what, you plan on attaching like coaching and like a online sort of a, a, a accountability through this book? Is like this book is the vessel that kind of opens that up? That's a great, uh, great question. No, <laughs> it's because I don't, I do not have the time or the bandwidth to to do that. Um, I know that there's a number of of health coaches and even doctors who are now using this book with their patients, which mm-hmm. is pretty awesome to be able to say. We do have a a forum on our website for every step of the eight steps where you can ask questions. Well, that's cool. And then I think at some point, but it's a year or two away, I'll, I'll probably roll out a clinical training course for doctors and healthcare providers to be able to use this work with people. But um, yeah, for, I'd love to have that accountability piece, but the, the next thing I want to tackle is trying to get a few more research studies published showing the validity of some of the approach that's recommended in the book. So um, mm-hmm. no, I, yeah. I kind of think I know the answer, but I would like to hear you articulate it. Do you believe that it's important that somebody learns all this information, even if you feel 100% healthy. I've got no issues. I feel fine. I eat the way I want to eat, and I don't have any problems. I think this book is one that that someone in that position, that fortunate position, could read, and it could give them some ideals to strive for if they wanted to be preventative in nature. Yes, and the re- but but I make that 
recommendation very cautiously because I would hate to take someone who is healthy and then pull them into this sickness of health indoctrination and just and just put that negative into their psyche. Mm. Right. This book will not do that because this book was written to be empowering rather than fear mongering. So that's the, I would say if you were someone who is healthy, I'd be very cautious with what you read because the last thing you need to do is fear yourself into feeling like you're not sick right. when you are. And that happens that happens more than you would think, right? So, th- right. so that's why I make that very careful answer is because I'd hate to see a healthy person think that they were sick even when they really weren't. Right, because I, I just mm-hmm. like to think that there's probably people out there that feel fine. I mean, I, I think of myself when I was 25. Like, I would have loved to have met you back when I was 25 years old. But if you would have asked me, I would have said, I'm fine. Right. And I was eating jack-in-the-box every once in a while. I hardly ever ate any vegetables. I didn't eat a lot of fermented foods because I didn't understand. I didn't really understand the right. importance of that. And I think understanding that, even if I didn't have problems, would have kind of set me into the right track mm. earlier on sure. as far as better food yep. choices and yep. things and, like and, that. And exactly, exactly that in, in the sense that I also wouldn't want to make you someone who's now a health nut. Right, who you go out to a restaurant and you ask the waiter, "Was that cooked in a Teflon pan?" Oh, none for me. Right? That, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I wouldn't create want to a turn bunch of orthorexics. You, yeah, I wouldn't want to turn you into that. And again, I'm not saying that you know it's it's healthy to use Teflon, but you want to be discerning in the way we. There's count bigger fucking rocks. There's exactly. bigger fucking rocks. Exactly. I tell people the same thing when they ask us detailed questions about supplements. It's like, oh, if I take this at this time, this. It's like, bro. You're not even fucking paying attention to what you're eating the rest of the day, and you're asking me about right. some supplements going to give you one percent <laughs> right. more of the edge. Right. It's like mm-hmm. let's handle the big rocks first, and yeah. I think you, that's what one of the things that we all connected when we all first met and why we become friends is. I think you're very responsible yeah. with the information that you provide, like what we try and do too. Is that yeah. listen? I'm not saying that that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just that there's probably other things that you should probably be yeah. putting a lot more effort into before you're worried about Teflon. Pick your battles. Yeah, right. exactly. Right. So, what are some other not so common uh, issues that people have that can be related to poor gut? Because obviously if you have constipation, bloating, diarrhea, anything that has to do with that, it, people you know, know, okay, my gut is off. Right. But what are some other common or some other symptoms that can be related to your gut that people don't necessarily realize? It's a, it's a really important question because you can have a non-digestive symptom that's caused by a digestive problem. And, th- and that was actually me. I had an amoeba, but I did not have diarrhea or bloating or abdominal pain. All I had was fatigue, very bad insomnia, brain fog, and I was feeling cold often, right? So you can have a problem in the gut that manifests solely as pimples and rashes or solely as insomnia or solely as fatigue or solely as brain fog or solely as irritability or solely as joint pain. Or soul, uh, or solely as hypothyroid-like symptoms. It wouldn't be, you know, I, I, saying it's hypothyroidism. I think would be a, a little bit of a stretch, but there's definitely, especially a SIBO thyroid and an H. pylori thyroid connection. So it's definitely possible, and we have, at, at very least, observations, if not clinical treatment data, showing that treating these imbalances in the gut will improve the skin, the joints, the brain fog, uh, the thyroid. Um, So I don't say these things lightly, again, being careful in the the language that we use, but we do know that it is very possible to have no digestive symptoms, but your symptoms are being caused by a problem in the gut. Yeah, and and it can be a lot of things. A lot of, I mean, it can be a a wide array of symptoms. Yeah, Yeah, that's what makes it difficult. 
Well, shit, man. I'm glad you wrote this book. Yeah. You know, we've been <laughs> recommending it to people. And um, how's, the re- how's the response been so far? It's been awesome. I mean, people are literally sending in testimony. I don't want to say testimonies, but just like thank yous on Instagram. Um, I haven't pooped normally in 10 years. This is the first time I've been pooping normally. Oh, wow. In, like literally. That's a big Damn. deal. It is a big <laughs> deal. Yeah. Like you owe another, another a celebration. An, another yeah. gal. I owe you my life. Yeah. Right, after And so it's, it's really cool to uh, never have met these people because I see that kind of thing in the clinic, which is great, but to have never even had met someone. And, right, and to be doing it all over the world now has got to be it's pretty a, it's cool. It's a really cool feeling, yeah. Well, yeah. and I'm really excited just to those everyone that's listening to, I already tied Mike down that we're going to start having him drop in our forum on occasionals, occasionals, occasional. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> occasionally. More, more words to add to the library. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, that's good. So he'll be in uh, the private forum and uh, we'll set it up to where you guys could uh, ask him some questions, spend about an hour on there to be able to talk to you guys. So that's something to look forward to in the Excellent. future. And the name yeah. of the book is Healthy Gut, Healthy You, and you can find that anywhere, right? Amazon. 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 Yeah. We'll also have, we'll have links in the bio. We'll have all kinds of stuff with that. Plus, yeah. we'll do a nice intro from Mike before we start the show. Excellent. Sure. Excellent. If you want to find on Instagram, what's your Instagram handle? I believe it's Dr. Rusho. So D R R U S C I O. Thanks, brother. Appreciate having on. Yeah. Yeah. Man. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks. Always fun. Thank you for listening to Mind Pump. If your goal is to build and shape your body, dramatically improve your health and energy, and maximize your overall performance, check out our discounted RGB Super Bundle at MindPumpMedia.com. The RGB Super Bundle includes Maps Anabolic, Maps Performance, and Maps Aesthetic. Nine months of phased expert exercise programming designed by Sal, Adam, and Justin to systematically transform the way your body looks, feels, and performs. With detailed workout blueprints and over 200 videos, the RGB Super Bundle is like having Sal, Adam, and Justin as your own personal trainers, but at a fraction of the price. The RGB Super Bundle has a full 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can get it now plus other valuable free resources at mindpumpmedia.com. If you enjoy this show, please share the love by leaving us a five-star rating and review on iTunes and by introducing Mind Pump to your friends and family. We thank you for your support, and until next time, this is Mind Pump.